Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest came to my attention in 2019 when I first heard about her novel, Famous Adopted People. Her name is Alice Stevens, and she said, As adoptees, our challenge is to become the subject of our own adoption stories and not the object. Following her quote, in my mind, I heard Mike drop, perfectly stated. I had the opportunity to get to know Alice better over the last several months, and not only is she a joy to work with, but a possessor of valuable information for writers of all genres. I am honored to personally know her as a traditionally published author who has an extraordinary career in the literary world. I have learned so much about the importance of adoptees becoming published writers so that the world can have a better lens to view the subject of adoption from those who have experienced it firsthand. Alice was born in Korea and was one of the first generations of transnational interracial adoptees. Her work has appeared in Urban Mosaic, Flung, Banana Writers, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the Washington Independent Review of Books, which publishes her column, Alice in Wordland. She lives with her family in the Washington, D.C. area. Famous Adopted People is her debut novel. In this episode, Alice shares a part of her adoption story and the decision that as an adoptee, becoming a writer was a highly worthwhile pursuit. Alice, I'm so glad you took the time to have a conversation with me today. How's it going? Thank you very much for having me on, Jennifer. It's going very well. I'm excited for this talk. So when you first came across my path, your name and the title of your book, Famous Adopted People, there was a quote, as adoptees, our challenge is to become the subject of our own adoption stories and not the object. I thought that quote by you was so powerful. How did you come to see it that way? Uh, so when I started to write the book, I was writing against other adoption books that I had read that were not written by adoptees. And in those books, they would treat the adoptee not as the main character, even though the adoptee was the main character. The adoptee was kind of helpless and was looking to be saved by somebody else, whether it was the adoptive parent or the birth parents or, you know, somebody who just helped them make sense of their life. And I thought that was rather damaging to adoptees that they were kind of seeing themselves always portrayed as somebody who was uh, not the center of the story because their actions did not influence the story. Somebody else's actions influenced them to overcome their, their difficulties. And I wanted to center the adoptee and make the adoptee the subject of the story who actually saves herself or does that hard labor to to come to terms with with adoption. And so I came up with the phrase after I had written the book and I was writing various articles about adoption and they asked me why I'd written the book and I just want I wanted to sort of condense it into one sort of tagline and that that seemed to me the main thrust of why I had written the book yes. to center the adoptee voice. Such a powerful quote. I I always go back to that when I think about 
our stories and us sharing them. Your book, your novel, I'm not finished with it yet, but each time I pick it up, I'm just like the way you put words together and your characters just speak to me. And so I am really enjoying it. And I really wanted you to talk a little bit about how you developed your characters. I had written a historical novel previously that didn't sell. And I always know I wanted to be an author. I wanted to sell a book. I wanted to have a book published. And so I thought, well, what should I should write what I know, and I know adoption. And I sat down to write a book, and it it just kind of came flowing out of me in a way that my historical novel did not. When my historical novel took years and years to write, whereas famous adopted people only took me about 10 months to get down um, and get into a, a, a form that I thought could be sent out to agents and publishers. It wasn't the finished form. It took me longer than that. But in terms of getting the, the main story down, it was very quick. And I think it was just because I had so many thoughts that had been building up in me over my lifetime about adoption that I'd never really sat down to figure out. One thing that I just really love about writing is that it forces you to organize your thoughts and forces you to think coherently. So all of these impressions and and emotions that I had swirling in my mind about adoption, I had to, when I sat down to write this novel, I had to think about it. I had to say, why do I feel this way? What, how has adoption affected me? I um, created sort of an alter ego. The main character's name is Lisa. And she and I share a lot of characteristics, but she is her own person. She is not me. I was able to exaggerate many of my life uh, experiences into her experience and therefore making her more dramatic than actually what my experience was. And then I kind of wanted a, a foil to her or sort of because as adoptees, we have many identities. I wanted to have Lisa, the main character, sort of as the the bad adoptee, and then her best friend, Mindy, as the perfect adoptee, and just sh- showing those two dichotomies of how, as adoptees, we, we have these different types that we fall into. And then just starting from their, their friendship, the story spun off from that. Yes. You know, having the opportunity to get to know you better since March with the Adoptive Voices Writing Group has really been wonderful for me to learn and think differently about writing. And I have to say, you have pushed me to a really good place about the importance of publishing. I know when I listened to your episode with Adoptive Zone host Haley Racky, Mm-hmm. And you were speaking about the need for adoptees to publish. Like, I didn't really get it when I first mm-hmm. listened to the episode 170, and I encourage listeners to go listen to your episode with Haley. But I get it now through the Adoptee Voices Writing Group that publishing is the next logical step. It is important to consider the publishing piece. So I just thank you for that because I, I didn't have that piece before getting to know you. And I do I do think that we need to encourage each other as adoptees to move to that next phase. So I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank <laughs> yeah, you. I just really... Thank you. That's important. Yeah, well, I think it's important. I just want to say it. It's the feeling is so mutual, Jennifer. I just, I'm so glad to have met you and Sarah Easterly and Ridge Ridge House you, all three of you have really uh, just really expanded my whole adoption community, my whole thinking about adoptees. And it's it's just been such a beautiful experience. And I'm so glad to have met you. Thank you. Um, and everything that you do for adoptees, the, the whole adoptee community out there it has been really so wonderful. And I, I just feel so badly for adoptees who don't have that community, who haven't who haven't gotten there yet, because it is such a supportive and healing community. And just 
we we are part of of a unique set of people and we even though we come from all the races and walks of life and religions and you know everything we all have that one bond and to have that meeting once a week with 30 other adoptee writers plus the three of you it's really a highlight a highlight of my um of my week and yeah i really think that there need to be more genuine adoptee writers out there in the uh, mainstream media or writing where non-adoptees can read them because right now the narrative about adoption is so centered on adoptive parents and their experience and on the fairy tale aspect of adoption without without ever really considering the adoptee herself as a person yeah we like we yeah. need to be heard from for sure yeah and and right now we're not heard from enough. And I think that's the big piece that I've learned in publishing. Because it's one thing to write. I've always been writing. But it's something else to take it to that next level where it's really out there. And people can, from all walks of life, be able to see the lens from our perspective. Yes. And I think that the story of adoption, like so many uh, stories, it needs to be looked at, re-examined, reframed, and the adoptee has to be centered instead of the adoptive parents and instead of the story that people are seem to be so heavily invested in, which is a story of rescue. And there, there's very little nuance in the way that people can look at adoption. And I think that's sort of a problem that people have maybe these days altogether that they lack nuance in looking at a lot of a lot of ideas that have dominated over this these our lifetime and we're looking at them and we're seeing that they're that they're wrong and that they're false and that they're only one person's perspective or one part of a community's perspective Mm -hmm. and that we have to open it up to everybody yes there is a resistance out there to adoptee voices and I think that the more that we clamor to be heard, the more that we're going to have to be heard. Yes. And I so, agree. yeah, publishing is is one of those ways. And I know that you published through Unnamed Press. Yes. And it was exciting. That's an indie press out of L.A., California. And when you got the news, tell me, Tell me what you felt, because you had received a lot of rejections, as you say. Uh, That's right. Prior to that. So tell me how that felt. I had written uh, Famous Adopted People. I had an agent, and she sent the manuscript out many times. And she she sent it out way more than, than an agent would, because she believed in it, and she believed in me. It got rejected. It got rejected so many times that she sent me a spreadsheet showing me. And then I sent it out myself. And this goes back to the resistance to adoptee voices because people, the the editors really didn't have a clear reason why they didn't want it. Some of them would say, oh, I published I published a book about adoption and it didn't do well, or else they would say, <clears throat> I published a book about adoption that I prefer better because it was a, a more a happier story about adoption. Mm-hmm. Or they would say that it took place in a foreign country. People don't like, there were always uh, silly little excuses, but I think that the main reason was, is that it challenged the story of adoption and it made people uncomfortable. So finally, I was about to give up. My agent said uh, she would not send it out anymore, and I understood. I had sent it out to many, many indie presses. I said, there's one other place to send it. Will you send it? She said, no. I said, okay, I'll do it on my own. And I told myself, I'm not going to send it out anymore. If they say no, I'm just going to listen to the universe, and I'm going to start something else. Mm -hmm. And I sent it out, and... It was a miracle. <laughs> the editor <laughs> called me and said, I, I like it. I'm going to read it through. Will you make these changes? 
you know, one of the one of the things that a writer wants to do is work with a, a really good editor to shape their book, because you do need that sort of outside voice telling you what doesn't work, what will work better, and just helping you to 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 get that removed opinion of your work is so helpful. And especially if somebody, this is what somebody does, they're professional. It's just, it's, it's an amazing thing to work with a, a great editor. And my editor, Chris Heiser at Unnamed Press was really good, but they wanted the, the revisions done very quickly. So I worked with him uh, to do the revisions from the time that he signed the book to publication. It was only 10 months, which is very short. In that, I kind of lost a lot of marketing potential, but I was, you know, I was just so happy to have my, to have somebody believe in my work, publish my work. And uh, yeah, it was just really one of the highlights of, of my writing career. I just hope listeners understand that that is huge to receive that acceptance and just that persistence, because as adoptee writers, we are going to get so much resistance mm-hmm. and you just have to persist and persist. And I know it could be hard because rejection is really, really hard. And I would sometimes I would just be like for days in a depression because it got my manuscript that I worked so hard on just got a flippant no, like blah, or else obviously the editor just didn't really just saw that it it took place in Korea or, you know, that right there and then was a reason to say no. So it was just lovely to have somebody realize and realize that this was a book that is intending to change the conversation. Right. Like when I think of your journey, there's such a message in in staying the course. And I really wanted to start with um, your success as a writer and and your persistence in getting publicated in a traditional way and all that that means. It's like really big. And then go into your story because your story really is full um, because I know... You are a transracial adoptee, international transracial. Yes, inter, we, we call it inter-country, so between two countries. So I was born in South Korea. I was born in 1967 to a Korean mother and an American father, the first major transnational adoptees to be adopted into America, and also the first really noticeable transracial adoptees as well. I, in America, there there have been, previous to the Koreans arriving, there were adoptions of Native Americans. There were some transracial adoptions with, between other races too. But generally, a transracial adoption is somebody from a non-white family being adopted into a white family. Mm-hmm. There are cases where there are different races involved in the adoptive family, mm-hmm. but generally it's it's white families adopting children who are not white. Right. Though it started right after the Korean War, the adoptees who came over to America were in the low hundreds, and I was part of that wave, and it wasn't until the 70s when the Korean adoptees were in the thousands mm-hmm. that they came every year. So it was for me like a, a very lonely time. And I, it's lonely to be a transracial adoptee anyway. I did not meet my first other Korean adoptee until I was in my late twenties. Mm. And I didn't see other transracial adoptees. People who encountered me hadn't encountered transracial <laughs> adoptees either. So it was always a really big, like thing, you know, where wherever I went with my family, people would take notice. I have three siblings who are all the biological children of my parents. And so they're all white. And I would be introduced to my sister's friends as her sister and they'd go, no, right. you know, they'd immediately <laughs> like deny that connection. Yeah, you, you don't really think about it until you you're older and then you you're like, why? It, it it really make it makes an impact on you that you don't you don't recognize as a child, 
But once you're an adult, you realize the effects that that repeated sort of rejection of you as somebody who would be a part of your family really does affect you. Not in a good way. (laughs) Right. I I recently talked with a um, biracial uh, adoptee raised by white parents, and she was saying that people would come up to her and say, what are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. Qu- mm-hmm. And she had become so desensitized to it that she would just answer once uh, she right. knew she had a black father and a white mother. I'm black and white. And she just responds because she feels like she's got to answer that question. But my point is that just it made me cringe to think that everywhere she's going with her family, because she clearly doesn't look biologically related, she's got this question, what are you? Yeah, yeah. And it's just so, people should really think before they ask. (laughs) Yeah. I think now it's changed. Well, maybe not if if she's a younger adoptee. And also it really depends where you live. For example, I live in a very, one of the most diverse places in the States. And also there are a lot of people with, transracial adoptees and so it's not such a big deal but then if you go to a really rural or a small town it still is a huge deal right that's a good point yeah yeah with the- you spend time in southern africa right you you spent some years yes. there. yeah so i was um i was very fortunate in my adoptive family they've always given me everything i needed and one of those things that they gave me is an international upbringing. My father was an economist. And when I was four years old, we moved to Botswana, which is in Southern Africa. And we lived there for six years. That was a wonderful, really wonderful thing. We traveled a lot during that time. And we've always traveled a lot throughout our lifetime. But it just gave me such a a perspective on the world that um, when I moved back to the States, I knew that other people didn't have, which was that, you know, there's a whole huge world out there and the United, the United States is not the, the center of it. And it made me comfortable just with other people, with other cultures, with other races, with other uh, societies. And I really think it, it gave me sort of what I, I hope is my open mind that I have today. So that was, yeah, it was just a wonderful experience. But on the downside was that I was one of maybe five East Asians in the city where we lived, the capital, Khabarone. So I never, again, I never really saw Asian people. And I was very, so like it was, you know, I, I had no connection to that part of me. And yet, since I was one of the few Asian people that, the, the Botswana had ever seen, I attracted a lot of attention. I got a lot of people pulling their eyes at me, you know, just like making me understand that there was something different about me that people found fascinating. And that made me feel bad whenever somebody mimics racial characteristics. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you feel good. Right. So there was, there was a lot of that that sort of ambiguity built into the experience too. And you're so young. I'm thinking, how did your parents, yeah. how did they respond to that? Knowing that was, your- you know, they didn't notice. They didn't know, mm. um, you know, and I don't think my, my siblings really, my siblings would stand up for me, but I don't think they really understood what it was. Right. And I think this is common a lot with a lot of transracial adoptees is that, Um, the family doesn't have the ability to really understand like the turmoil that goes on within you and the identity issues that go on within you, no matter how well-intentioned they might be or how well-prepared they might be. Anytime you're going to adopt a child of a different race into your family you're setting you're setting the child up and you up for a unique set of circumstances. There's really no way that it can be avoided. 
Yeah, and I think yeah. I've heard transracial adoptees talk about uh, they they felt their parents, adoptive parents, played a colorblind card, and yeah. yeah, almost like it's not a big deal. We don't we're not seeing color, but th- the world sees color. Yeah, and you can't do that. You can't say, you know, <laughs> you can't say that it doesn't matter because it does. Right. Yeah, the world sees color. You're so right, and the world doesn't doesn't let you know. I mean, it doesn't leave you alone about it, you know? Right. And then, like, I don't subscribe to playing color isn't important because it kind of gives the impression, well, maybe not even kind of, gives the impression that the differences, some, there's something wrong. Like, to acknowledge that someone's different, we don't want to do that. And it's okay that people are different. Yeah. Yeah. Like, And... There's also the issue of the cultural side of your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And it's very true that I want to connect with my Korean side. Yeah. And when I was younger, growing up, there was very little evidence of Korean culture. So I took Asian culture and I, I've just always been very interested in Asian culture in general. That was encouraged by my parents. Um, My mom was actually a Chinese major in in college. But it was encouraged more in like a cultural way rather than an identity. They didn't understand that I was looking for my identity. They thought that they had given me everything I needed for my identity. And they had given me almost everything. But by not acknowledging that difference, that racial difference in us, that they did themselves a disservice and they did me a disservice. But the great thing about my parents is that they realize that. And my mom especially is really trying hard now to understand. Since I published this book, I've been talking a lot about adoption in public and with my family. And I hadn't, we hadn't talked about adoption before. And I think that's pretty common with a lot of people from my generation, a lot of adoptees from my generation, like adoption wasn't something that your mom or your dad would talk to you about, you know, how do you feel? Or, you know, that sort of thing. It just wasn't talked about. But now uh, she understands more and she's really making the effort. And that's really all, all I can ask. You know, she's in her 80s and it's just, it's really nice for, to see her, to try and, and understand more. Yeah, that is good. And I think that is happening with a lot of families. And yeah, my family, we didn't sit and talk about it. I would ask what did they think occasionally, but it was a standard answer. You know, we couldn't have children and we chose you kind of conversation and that would be the end of it. That's that's yeah. nice to know that since your book, it has opened. And I'm sure it's opened up for a lot of families a conversation as adoptees come forward and speak about our experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really hope. Yeah, that's my, my big hope. And that's going back to why adoptees should publish so that people sometimes you can you can read things that somebody has told you somebody you, you know and love has told you many times and you don't hear them but then when you see somebody else who you don't know oh, and it's ri- yeah. yeah written on the page then you can hear it a little better and then connect it to yeah to what somebody's been telling you so when you were younger so we'll say 10, 12-ish, you would think about your family of origin. I did. I didn't have the yearning that many adoptees do to to meet my birth mother uh, until much later, until, until recently, actually. But I did think about her a lot. I had a file, and I would occasionally go into that file and read the file, and it had a little bit of little bits of information about her and about my father. And I would think about it, but I would think about what my other half of my ethnicity was because I knew I was half Korean, but with my father, my birth father, you know, I didn't know what 
he was American, but I didn't know what. And so I would often think about what my ethnicity was. Mm-hmm. In terms of like thinking of my mother as a real person, it didn't happen until really kind of recently. And a lot of people say it happened when they gave birth to their children. Mm-hmm. But even that, I have two sons, and when they were born, it was, you know, I think as for all adoptees, just to see your own flesh and blood for the first time right. was so amazing and moving. But I didn't think about my parents in that way really until quite recently, I would say, as I was writing the book. And since then, I've taken a DNA test. I I found my father, who is deceased, but I found out who he is. And I found out that my ethnicity is nothing what I thought it was. I always kind of imagined I was Euro because I was raised with white people. So I thought I was half white. Mm -hmm. And it's really quite amazing the extent of whitewashing that can happen when you're raised with white people. Just, you really do. I mean, you grow up thinking you're white, you have totally white views. And it's, so it, it is like, as transracial adoptees, we have several journeys. One of them is the, the adoption journey. And the other one is that journey of ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. I was taking both those journeys simultaneously. My birth father was Mexican-American. So I am, I am Korean. I am Mexican. I am indigenous. I'm Native American. And then I have like little bits of European ancestry. I have Congolese ancestry and I am also part Neanderthal. So I am like a child of, of the world. (laughs) You know, I've got like every bits of, of, all sorts of genetic bits in me, of which I'm terribly proud. And right. I just, I think it's great. I think it's great, too, just to hear you say it. Yeah, yeah. And I I really believe that, you know, like, the mixing of the genes is what's going to save humanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I that's... That. I can see that, for sure. Yeah. I learned the value of being able to cry like Mm -hmm. cry in public, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of adoptees don't want to show their vulnerability to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so we hide our emotions away. But in the supportive adoptee community, like I sob like a baby several times in front of everybody. And it was so freeing, you know, it was not embarrassing. It was like, for me, that was really my first step to like, that's good to, to healing and yeah yeah That's good so the healing also I'm wondering when you were writing your book did you experience some healing at that time too which maybe made you want to to search and dig a little bit deeper for your beginnings yeah I think I did um I it helped me as I said um before just to kind of really examine my own my own issues, my own identity issues, look back on my life and see I had a pretty tumultuous adolescence. I I made mistakes and some horrible mistakes in my life. I had to look back on my relationships and, you know, see how how I behaved badly in them and the things that I did that that I look back on now in horror. And why did I do that? And it all kind of led back to me being an adoptee. Mm -hmm. And so just to be able to look at my life sort of uh, from a little bit of a remove. uh, Yeah, it was, it it told me that I needed to, I needed to heal. You know, I needed, there was something that was broken in me that needed to, to find some sort of, um, support and an understanding of why it was broken and how to fix it. Yeah. When you had a file at, at your home growing up, did you feel that this was just kind of a place you could go and maybe look at information and be okay with what you saw there? Yeah, you know, it was kind of like a baby book. Uh, most people have a, ba- a baby photo album, you know, with all of their 
birth information and the picture, their first picture with their parents and the exact data when they were born, how much they weighed, you know, all that sort of stuff. We don't have that. But what I had and what a lot of Korean adoptees have is the file. Mm -hmm. And if their parents let them, you know, my parents always gave me access to it. I knew where it was in my father's filing cabinet and Mm -hmm. I could go there anytime and look at it. And I would. And yeah, it, it did give me comfort. It was like looking back and looking at my own baby book. And I would read about my there were details about both of them. And I kind of memorized those details. But then when I went back to Korea, I went to the adoption agency and had an interview with the social worker and she brought out my file and she told me like a heartbreaking news and she, which was that the name that was my mother's name was probably a pseudonym, was probably a fake name. So this name that I treasured all my life turned out to be a lie. And then the more that we like look into our files, the more we find their lies. There's mm. that you can't tell what's true and what's not true. You know, the file is is both a blessing and a curse because okay. when I was young, it gave me a sense of where I came from. And then I took all of that information and and sort of made it sacred to me. Mm-hmm. And then you come to find that actually it's a lie. And then that leads you to think, well, what else is a lie? Was the name that they said that my my birth name, my Korean name, is that real? Is my birth date real? And and then it's just the whole spiral from there. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Was there a picture of your birth mom in that file? There was no picture of either of them. Okay. A description of both of them. My mother was described as... Um, <sighs> something like rural and talkative. So, you know, basically like she was a happy peasant. (laughs) Um, And my father, there was a brief physical description of him, but there was no photo. There was a photo of me as a baby. I took a DNA test shortly after my book was published and it immediately gave me information about my birth father's side of the family. I was hesitant to contact the match, the Mm -hmm. DNA match, because I knew that once I contacted them, there was no no going back. And I just, I had to like brace myself because we don't know what we're going to find on the end of that. They're just really scary stories out there. So I had to really prepare myself. And then I contacted this this DNA match and she knew right away and told me who my birth father was, but he had passed away. I got in contact with my half brother and we have a really good relationship. And through him, I found out more about the story and and got a photo actually of both my, my mother and my father together. Mm. So that's like, I have this photo, which is more than a lot of people have. And I'm so grateful for it. And I know a lot more about his uh, story, and um, but I have not yet gone to meet that side of the family. I've met my half brother. It's a Mexican American family, and you know, a huge sprawling family. Uh, they live in California. I am planning to go sometime. I'm pretty nervous about it, but I do feel like it's important that I should go and meet them. Mm-hmm. Now, what about your maternal side? Yeah, that, um, nothing. I've, I'm looking, I'm really, really, I, you know, at this point, I'm 50, I will almost be 54. She, I'm not sure how old she is, but um, the file said she was 35, which would make her almost 90 now. Mm-hmm. So she is most li- likely not alive. The woman who, who runs, she runs trips that takes uh, Korean adoptees back to Korea out of the goodness of her heart. She's not adopted. I think it's her mission to have Koreans to introduce adoptees back to their birthland and also to make Koreans more aware about Korean adoptees because they really don't know, Koreans don't know 
that their government has syst systematically exported babies to other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like a secret. Yeah. Or it's not a secret because it's there, but people don't care to, to learn about it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we went to where I was born and we found supposedly my birthplace. Of course, you don't know. You can't know if it's true or not. But I do know that that's where she lived, where my birth mother lived and where my father would come to visit her. So it was just profoundly moving to have to go stand on that spot that same spot. And then we walked around a neighborhood where women who used to live around the army camps in Korea still lived with this photo of my mother and my father. And we showed the photo to these women to see if they knew her. And nobody knew her, but they were all very eager to help me. And they kind of joined. And at the end, by the end, we were kind of a parade of people going door to door, you know, and everybody saying, do you know, do you know? And, and, and it was really nice to see that, <laughs> see yeah. these people try to help me. And that really, I have a lot of anger <laughs> towards Korea. And that really helped me, it helped me a lot to mm -hmm. kind of disperse that anger. Mm -hmm. I have not made any progress on finding my mother. I will not give up. I want to find her even even if she's no longer around. Right. But it's it's tough and my chances are really, really small. Just a couple more questions. I, I wanted to be sure and ask you what's been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community. Mm, I think it's really community. There's several ways that I'm I've been introduced into the adoptee community. One of the best is through this writing group, also through other adoptee writers. And there are quite a few of, as you know, there are a lot of adoptee writers out there and they make their own community, which is lovely. And then the uh, Korean American adoptee community is also very tight and there are a lot of different ways that you can get involved with them. And then the HAPA CADs, as we're called, the half, the mixed race <laughs> Korean Americans, we're also a tight community. So just by, by being among other adoptees, knowing that you're not alone, knowing that the issues that you had are common and that they're not because of some personal fault or failure of yours, but that's because of your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Being able to share resources, being able to share stories, it's all just been so empowering to me. And I just, I, I urge any adoptee, all adoptees to find that community because it's, it, it's so helpful. I agree. It's just one of the best things I ever did. And when I get a chance to really get to know other adoptees more closely, like we've been able to do since March, it's mm -hmm. been really nice. Because it's so many things that I know I don't know. Like, I, I, it's so clear to me. And, and I think in community, we get a chance, even though we do have adoption in common, there's so many, our lives are so full and different that it, it's so much more to learn. And so, yes. many, yeah, so many things yeah. that we as adoptees can discover from each other. Let's get back to the writing. What is your best guidance to adoptees wanting to write fiction about adoption? <clears throat> I guess the best advice that I would have is persistence. Just keep on writing. Writing takes practice. Writing, it's hard. It requires you that you can sit still for a long time. It requires that you can think <clears throat> about one thing for a long time, that you can go over and over and over the same thing. The most important thing, I think, is the commitment. You have to, if this is what you want to do, then you commit yourself to it because it's not the type of thing that you can just do like in half measures. You really, you have to learn the craft. I would suggest that you read a lot and you know what kind of 
writing that you want to do, and then you read in that writing and that you write a lot and you revise. So really, it's all about persistence. And then when you submit, again, it's persistence. You'll get rejected a lot, but you just keep on going. And then the other thing, what really helped me is self-confidence. It's really important to have self-confidence. And that's something I don't know if you can, can be taught or not. But it goes back to the persistence and the and the and the rejection. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody's gonna believe in you. So you gotta believe in yourself first, and then you gotta put in the hard work, and then you you will get the results. You build on it yes. every day. And I do yes. think it's important to have that self-confidence going hand in hand with persistence. Totally agree. You're just such a fine example, uh, making a living at it. That's like really worth thinking about as adoptees. One of the great things about the writing group is that I think that people are sort of moving more towards having that confidence and getting that confidence in saying, oh, my words count and and people need to hear them. And so I'm going to keep on writing and hopefully... Uh, I'm going to get published somewhere where not just my friends, but everybody can read it. Exactly. Yes. And and I think that that is maybe what's lacking. When people kind of shy away from publishing, it's because they they are lacking the self-confidence that it's worth it. Like it's someone wants to read it, that it's worth reading and all of that. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of adoptees don't think that their that that their stories are worth hearing or that they have anything to say. Mm-hmm. Everything I've heard our adoptees writers say has been worth hearing. Yes, you know. Yes, a lot of times we don't take the next step because we we need examples like you. We need to know, yeah, like it is worth considering. So we need the encouragement and right yeah yeah so and that it's possible that it's possible yeah and look yeah alice look here's alice like you bring so much to the group as you already know i think we all do i do believe that yeah we're all different yes. but the piece you yes. bring was actually a piece i needed i'll put it like that oh so i oh. know the well other. you i mutual i really yeah. i mean it's so true i think that we if it was not the four of us, you know, it would not be, it wouldn't be so as wonderful as it is. Yeah, Sarah did a good job in putting us she together. Really did. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and yeah, and I and I think the the other writers from the cohort one and the one we're in now, or when this airs, it will we probably would be doing cohort three, but, oh, well. but yeah, yeah, like it's, yeah. um, it's been a benefit to everyone. So is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to leave with the audience, particularly transracial adoptees? Um, I think your, your questions have been so good and comprehensive for transracial adoptees. I just, I think that our, our time, you know, we are at a place now where there is a community out there. There, we are kind of coming into, or this might just be my own. Maybe I'm just late to the party, and everybody's already done that. But for me, I feel like transracial adoptees are really coming into their own now. That they're finding their voice. That they're asserting their themselves. There have been uh, several important memoirs that have been published. Uh, Surviving the White Gaze came out this year. Nicole Chung's classic, um, All You Can Ever Know. And there are other, lots of other transracial adoptee, there are documentaries, there are blogs. You know, there's just, we found our voice and we're speaking out. So you can find, and if you're a transracial adoptee and you're looking for community, you can find it by just Googling, uh, you know, Googling things. You'll find, you'll find people on YouTube, you'll find Facebook groups, you'll find people on Twitter. So it's, it, it, it's 
an exciting time. I think it's an exciting time to be an adoptee and an exciting time to be a transracial adoptee because I think people are finally ready to listen a little bit. And I think what we have to say is so very important to like the future of this whole country. And if people listen to us <laughs> and we get our voices out there, I think that's just for the best for everybody. Well said, well said. Thank you again, Alice, for taking the time out to have this conversation. It's been great. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Uh, and you're, you're, you know, you're one of those people out there who are, who, who are out there for adoptees to discover, to hear your, your interviews and know that there is a whole world out, of, uh, out there of us and that we all have different stories. You know, we all have these unique identities, but we all also have one. We have one very important message, which is, I don't know. Actually, it's more than one important message. It's, it's like for me, it's the whole message of humanity. Yeah. You know, and so to listen to us is to to learn to learn more about the human experience. I agree, and. Everyone should get a copy of Famous Adopted People by Alice Stevens. I like when Alice says that writing forces you to organize your thoughts, and she's an excellent example for us to know that we can develop those skills. We as adoptees have much to say about our experiences, and in our toolbox, Writing can give us an edge over sharing a more accurate account of what adoption really means from our perspective. I believe one of the best things a person can leave behind as a part of their legacy are their written words. It is a gift from Alice to the adoption community when she shares her time and expertise to help other writers develop their craft for the purpose of publication. She is more than willing to give constructive feedback to adoptees seeking to get better at writing and expressing their thoughts. When she speaks of rejection, not acceptance, being the norm when submitting our pieces to be published, it only makes sense that, as she also put it, self-confidence is a must. As adoptees, we can trust that we can still keep showing up, as Alice did, when so many told her no, before she received a yes. Thank you, Alice, for having a conversation with me. You have so much to offer all of us when it comes to being writers, whether we publish or not. Your journey is inspirational as a trailblazer of transnational and interracial adoptees. I look forward to staying in touch with you for years to come, learning about how to be a better writer and sharing it with others who want to put their words into print. I know that other adoptees will decide to share their stories in poetry, memoir, or fiction because you shared yours. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adoptee land. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.